Section 14 of How the Other Half Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees. The Color Line in New York. The color line must be drawn through the tenements to give the picture its proper shading. The landlord does the drawing, does it with an absence of pretense, a frankness of despotism that is nothing if not brutal. The czar of all the rushes is not more absolute upon his own soil than the New York landlord in his dealings with colored tenants. Where he permits them to live, they go. Where he shuts the door, stay out. By his grace they exist at all in certain localities. His ukase banishes them from others. He accepts the responsibility, when laid at his door, with unruffled complacency. It is business, he will tell you, and it is. He makes the prejudice in which he traffics pay him well, and that, as he thinks it quite superfluous to tell you, is what he is there for. That his pencil does not make quite as black a mark as it did, that the hand that wields it does not bear down as hard as only a short half-dozen years ago, is the hopeful sign of an awakening public conscience under the stress of which the line shows signs of wavering. But for this the landlord deserves no credit. It has come, is coming about, despite him. The line may not be wholly effaced, while the name of the Negro, alone among the world's races, is spelled with a small N. Natural selection will have more or less to do beyond a doubt in every age with dividing the races, only so, it may be, can they work out together their highest destiny. But with the despotism that deliberately assigns to the defenseless black the lowest level for the purpose of robbing him there that has nothing to do, of such slavery, different only in degree from the other kind that held him as chattel, to be sold or bartered at the will of his master, this century, if signs fail not, will see the end in New York. Ever since the war, New York has been receiving the overflow of colored population from the southern cities. In the last decade, this migration has grown to such proportions that it is estimated that our blacks have quite doubled in number since the tenth census. Whether the exchange has been of advantage to the Negro may well be questioned. Trades, of which he had practical control in his southern home, are not open to him here. I know that it may be answered that there is no industrial proscription of color. That is a matter of choice. Perhaps so. At all events, he does not choose then. How many colored carpenters or masons has anyone seen at work in New York? In the South, there are enough of them, and if the testimony of the most intelligent of their people is worth anything, plenty of them have come here. As a matter of fact, the colored man takes in New York, without a struggle, the lower level of menial service for which his past traditions and natural love of ease perhaps as yet fit him best. Even the colored barber is rapidly getting to be a thing of the past. Along sure at any unskilled labor, he works unmolested, but he does not appear to prefer the job. His sphere thus defined, he naturally takes his stand among the poor and in the homes of the poor. Until very recent times, the years since a change has wrought can be counted on the fingers of one hand, he was practically restricted in the choice of a home to a narrow section on the west side that, nevertheless, had a social top and bottom to it. 
the top in the tenements on the line of seventh avenue as far north as thirty-second street where he was allowed to occupy the houses of unsavory reputation which the police had cleared and for which decent white tenants could not be found the bottom in the vile rookeries of thompson street and south fifth avenue the old africa that is now fast becoming a modern italy Today there are black colonies in Yorkville and Morrisania. The encroachment of business and the Italian below, and the swelling of the population above, have been the chief agents in working out his second emancipation, a very real one, for with his cutting loose from the old tenements there has come a distinct and gratifying improvement in the tenant that argues louder than theories or speeches the influence of vile surroundings in debasing the man. The colored citizen whom this year's census man found in his ninety-ninth street flat is a very different individual from the nigger his predecessor counted in the black and tan slums of Thompson and Sullivan streets. There is no more clean and orderly community in New York than the new settlement of colored people that is growing up on the east side from Yorkville to Harlem. Cleanliness is the characteristic of the negro in his new surroundings, as it was his virtue in the old. In this respect, he is immensely the superior of the lowest of the whites, the Italians and the Polish Jews, below whom he has been classified in the past in the tenant scale. Nevertheless, he has always had to pay higher rents than even those for the poorest and most stinted rooms. The exceptions I have come across, in which the rents, though high, have seemed more nearly on a level with what was asked for the same number and size of rooms in the average tenement, were in the case of tumble-down rookeries in which no one else would live, and were always coupled with the condition that the landlord should make no repairs. It can readily be seen that his profits were scarcely curtailed by his humanity. The reason advanced for this systematic robbery is that white people will not live in the same house with colored tenants, or even in a house recently occupied by Negroes, and that consequently its selling value is injured. The prejudice undoubtedly exists, but it is not lessened by the house agents who have set up the maxim, once a colored house, always a colored house. There is a method in the maxim, as shown by an inquiry made last year by the real estate record, it proved agents to be practically unanimous in the endorsement of the Negro as a clean, orderly, and profitable tenant. Here is the testimony of one of the largest real estate firms in the city. Quote, we would rather have Negro tenants in our poorest class of tenements than the lower grades of foreign white people. We people find the former cleaner than the latter, and they do not destroy the property so much. We also get higher prices. We have a tenement on 19th Street where we get $10 for two rooms, which we could not get more than $7.50 for from white tenants previously. We have a four-story tenement on our books on 33rd Street between 6th and 7th Avenues with four rooms per floor, a parlor, two bedrooms, and a kitchen. We get $20 for the first floor, 24 for the second, $23 for the third, and $20 for the fourth. In all, $87, or $1,044 per annum. The size of the building is only 21 plus 55, close quote. Another firm declared that in a specified instance, 
They had saved 15 to 20 percent on the gross rentals since they changed from white to colored tenants. Since another gave the following case of a front and rear tenement that had formerly been occupied by tenants of a low European type, who had been turned out on account of filthy habits and poor pay. The Negroes proved cleaner, better, and steadier tenants. Instead, however, of having their rents reduced in consequence, the comparison stood as follows. Rents under white tenants per month. Front, first floor, store, etc., $21. Second floor, $13. Third floor, $13. Fourth floor and rear, $21. Rear, second floor $12, third floor $12, fourth floor, C front. Rear house, first floor $8, second floor $10, third floor $9, fourth floor $8, total $127. Rents under colored tenants per month. Front, first floor, store, etc., $21, second floor $14, third floor $14, fourth floor $14. Rear, second floor $12, third floor $13, fourth floor $13. Rear house, first floor $10, second floor $12, third floor $11, fourth floor $10, total $144. An increased rental of $17 per month, or $204 a year, and an advance of nearly 13.5% on the gross rental in favor of the colored tenant. Profitable? Surely. I have quoted these cases at length in order to let in light on the quality of this landlord despotism that has purposely confused the public mind and for its own selfish ends in propping up a waning prejudice. It will be cause for congratulation if indeed its time has come at last. Within a year, I am told by one of the most intelligent and best informed of our colored citizens, there has been evidence, simultaneous with the colored hegira from the low downtown tenements, of a movement towards less exorbitant rents. I cannot pass from this subject without adding a leaf from my own experience that deserves a place in this record, though for the credit of humanity, I hope as an extreme case. It was last Christmas that I had occasion to visit the home of an old colored woman in 16th Street, as the almoner of generous friends out of town who wished me to buy her a Christmas dinner. The old woman lived in a wretched shanty, occupying two mean, dilapidated rooms at the top of a sort of hen-ladder that went by the name of stairs. For these she paid ten dollars a month out of her hard-earned wages as a scrub-woman. I did not find her in, and being informed that she was at the agent's, went round to hunt her up. The agent's wife appeared to report that Anne was out. Being in a hurry, it occurred to me that I might save time by making her employer the purveyor of my friend's bounty, and proposed to entrust the money, two dollars, to her to be expended for old Anne's benefit. She fell in with the suggestion at once, and confided to me, in the fullness of her heart, that she liked the plan, insomuch as I generally find her a Christmas dinner myself, and this money she owes Mr., her husband the agent, a lot of rent. Needless to say, that there was a change of program then and there, and that Anne was saved from the sort of Christmas cheer that woman's charity would have spread before her. When I had the old soul comfortably installed in her own den, with a chicken and fixins and a bright fire in her stove, I asked her how much she owed of her rent. Her answer was that she did not really owe anything, her month not being quite up. 
but that the amount yet unpaid was two dollars. Poverty, abuse, and injustice alike the Negro accepts with imperturbable cheerfulness. His philosophy is of the kind that has no room for repining. Whether he lives in an eighth ward barrack or in a tenement with a brownstone front and pretensions to the title of flat, he looks at the sunny side of life and enjoys it. He loves fine clothes and good living a good deal more than he does a bank account. The proverbial rainy day it would be rank ingratitude from his point of view to look for when the sun shines unclouded in a clear sky. His home surroundings, except when he is utterly depraved, reflect his blithesome temper. The poorest negro housekeeper's room in New York is bright with gaily colored prints of his beloved Abe Lincoln, General Grant, President Garfield, Mrs. Cleveland, and other national celebrities, and cheery with flowers and singing birds. In the art of putting the best foot foremost, disguising his poverty by making a little go a long way, our negro has no equal. When a fair share of prosperity is his, he knows how to make life and home very pleasant to those about him. Pianos and parlor furniture abound in the uptown homes of colored tenants and give them a very prosperous air. But even when the wolf howls at the door, he makes a bold and gorgeous front. The amount of style displayed on fine Sundays on 6th and 7th avenues by colored holiday makers would turn a pessimist black with wrath. The Negro's great ambition is to rise in the social scale to which his color has made him a stranger and an outsider, and he is quite willing to accept the shadow for the substance where that is the best he can get. The clawhammer coat and the white tie of a waiter in a first-class summer hotel, with the chance of taking his ease in six months of winter, are to him the next best thing to mingling with the white quality he serves on equal terms. His festive gatherings, preeminently his cakewalks, at which a sugared and frosted cake is the proud prize of the couple with the most aristocratic step and carriage, are comic mixtures of elaborate ceremonial and the joyous abandon of the natural man. With all his ludicrous incongruities, his sensuality and his lack of moral accountability, his superstition and other faults that are the effect of temperament and of centuries of slavery, he has his eminently good points. He is loyal to the backbone, proud of being an American and of his newfound citizenship. He is at least as easily molded for good as for evil. His churches are crowded to the doors on Sunday nights when the colored colony turns out to worship. His people own church property in the city upon which they have paid half a million dollars out of the depth of their poverty with comparatively little assistance from their white brethren. He is both willing and anxious to learn and his intellectual status is distinctly improving. If his emotions are not very deeply rooted, they are at least sincere while they last, and until the tempter gets the upper hand again. Of all the temptations that beset him, the one that troubles him, and the police most, is his passion for gambling. The game of policy is a kind of unlawful penny lottery, specially adapted to his means, but patronized extensively by poor white players as well. It is the meanest of swindles, but reaps for its backers rich fortunes wherever colored people congregate. Between the fortune-teller and the policy shop, closely allied frauds always, the wages of many a hard day's work are wasted by the negro, but the loss causes him few regrets. Penniless, but with undaunted faith in his ultimate luck, he looks forward to the time when he shall once more be able to take a hand at beating policy.
when periodically the negro's lucky numbers four eleven forty four come out on the slips of the alleged daily drawings that are supposed to be held in some far-off western town intense excitement reigns in thompson street and along the avenue where someone is always the winner an immense impetus is given then to the bogus business that has no existence outside of the cigar stores and candy shops where it hides from the law save in some cunning bowery broker's back office where the slips are printed and the winnings apportioned daily with due regard to the backers interests it is a question whether africa has been improved by the advent of the italian with the tramp from the mulberry street bend in his train the moral turpitude of thompson street has been notorious for years and the mingling of the three elements does not seem to have wrought any change for the better the borderland where the white and black races meet in common debauch the aptly named black and tan saloon has never been debatable ground from a moral standpoint it has always been the worst of the desperately bad than this commingling of the utterly depraved of both sexes white and black on such ground there can be no greater abomination usually it is some foul cellar dive perhaps run by the political leader of the district who is in with the police in any event it gathers to itself all the lawbreakers and all the human wrecks within reach when a fight breaks out during the dance a dozen razors are handy in as many bootlegs and there is always a job for the surgeon and the ambulance the black tough is as handy with the razor in a fight as his peaceably inclined brother is with it in pursuit of honest trade as the chinaman hides his knife in his sleeve and the italian his stiletto in his bosom so the negro goes to the ball with the razor in his bootleg and on occasion does as much execution with it as both of the others together more than three-fourths of the business the police have with the colored people in new york arises in the black and tan district now no longer fairly representative of their color i have touched briefly upon such facts in the negro's life as may serve to throw light on the social condition of his people in new york if when the account is made up between the races it shall be claimed that he falls short of the result to be expected from twenty-five years of freedom it may be well to turn to the other side of the ledger and see how much of the blame is borne by the prejudice and greed that have kept him from rising under a burden of responsibility to which he could hardly be equal and in this view he may be seen to have advanced much farther and faster than before suspected and to promise after all with fair treatment quite as well as the rest of us his white-skinned fellow-citizens had any right to expect. End of section 14